Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're with us for the first time, we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians this year, and we go really passage by passage seeking to understand what God's word means and how we can apply it to our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. How did I end up here? The Corinthian church member asked as he woke up on the marble steps of the temple of Aphrodite. His head was spinning as he sat up, as he rested his head in his hands. He clearly had a hangover and slowly glanced back into the temple, realizing he spent the night here on these steps. Shame flushed over him as he realized he had given himself to immorality and idol worship. How could this happen? A while ago, he had turned from idolatry to Christ. He was a faithful member of the Christian church. As he slumped there, though, he recalled the day before. He recalled how he arrogantly walked by the temple and and in pride kind of looked at that temple and thought, I would not go back to that. But then he smelled the food cooking in the temple and it was the sizzling steak aroma coming from the animal sacrifices and that smelled good. And he thought, Maybe I'll get a bite to eat. I have freedom in Christ to be able to eat that meat, right? And so he sat down at one of the little shops around the temple and ordered some meat to eat and thought, well, maybe I'll get a little wine. Like, I have freedom in Christ to do that. And so he ate the meat. It tasted so, so delicious. The wine slid down his throat so smoothly, and he looked over at the temple and remembered the pleasure high of being in there when he once worshiped in that temple before he came to Christ. After a few bites and a few drinks, he thought, well, maybe I'll just take a, a peek inside the temple. Maybe I'll see someone I know. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll share the gospel with them. And he walked in the temple, saw some pretty girls, and one thing led to another. And he woke up the next day at the bottom of those steps and had spiritually fallen. Now, that story is fictional. It's not anywhere in the scripture. But I think it's a realistic illustration of what Paul was warning the Corinthian believers of. See, many Corinthian believers had been saved out of idolatry. And idolatry for them included eating and drinking and immorality in and outside pagan temples dedicated to a false god. And the warning here in 1 Corinthians 10 for the Corinthian believers was to be careful how you exercise your freedoms in Christ. I mean, 1 Corinthians 10 here is starting in in chapter 8 and 9 and chapter 10 here speaking about freedoms we have in Christ. And a Christian might say, well, there's nothing wrong with me going here or eating that or doing that. But Paul was warning here, you must be careful how you exercise that liberty because it could ensnare you in sin. And for the Corinthian church, the concern he had was for them to go back 
to idolatry. In fact, you can see that. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7. Paul's concern there is for them not to go back into idolatry. He says, do not be idolaters. This is a command. Verse 14, look at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved church, I'm talking to you, flee idolatry. And so here Paul is speaking about Christian freedoms, but his concern is those Christian freedoms, some of those that they might exercise might lead them down to the path of temptation and then to sin. And in my story of the Corinthian Christian, did you notice how his sin started with the deception of self-confidence? And then it spiraled with the desires of his flesh. It was just like, well, maybe I can have this. Maybe I want this. And there were some innocent things, maybe things that weren't in and of themselves wrong. But one step led to another step, one desire to another. And then at last, he woke up shocked with the devastation of the consequences of his sin. And church, those are the steps right there that lead to spiritual failure 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 12, warn of the steps that lead to spiritual failure. We we started looking at this last week. We're going to finish this here this week. And first, it starts with the deception of self-confidence. And then it spirals with the desires of your flesh. And then it ends and shocks with divine consequence. This passage is really a warning passage Again, as we've done the past couple weeks, look at 1 Corinthians 9, 27, that leads into chapter 10. Paul there testified he was always on guard for his own spiritual failure, and he uses the word what? Disqualified. He did not want to be disqualified. He was aware that he could fail to keep trusting God. And he was so concerned about that for himself and for these Corinthians, he wrote this and warned them. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.1. He addressed the church. Verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and brothers and sisters. That's the church. I want you to be aware of your potential to spiritually fall. And then he concludes that. Look at verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so Paul, Paul was very concerned for the spiritual condition of the church. And so in verses 1 through 11, he used Israel as an example of God's people who, who failed to trust God. And why did they fail to trust God? Well, he outlines that. And really at the central part of that was that they followed their own sinful desires. And so we're going to look this morning really at the last two steps that lead to spiritual failure from 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. I'd like to read this entire text and have you kind of think about these different steps. And I'd like to have a stand to do that. Would you stand with me? I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. I'd like to have a stand as we think about God's word. We're standing in reverence to his word. And I will read it as you follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, 4. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them 
and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. This is the word of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'll take this text, encourage us, instruct us, convict us, and lead us to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage, as I said earlier, is a part of a section that deals with Christian liberty issues. So as we consider these steps to spiritual failure, we need to think of it in that context. Spiritual temptation often happens in the context of our rights we have in Christ, our freedoms we have in Christ. In other words, it's in the areas the Bible is not clear about, that we can't point to a verse and say, well, the Bible says we must do that. It's, it's in those areas that aren't as clear, that often that path, we're led down that path to dishonor Christ. And we can often excuse what we know maybe is not best for us. The scripture maybe isn't clear, but we know this probably isn't best for us. We can often excuse by justifying ourselves and saying, well, well, I have freedom in Christ to do that. I can watch this. I can have that. I can stay there. I can stay up late for this. The Bible doesn't say this or that or whatever. And so I, I can do that. I have freedom in Christ to do that. But, but think about the story that I told of this fictional story of the Corinthian believer. Was it wrong for him to drink wine? Is it wrong to drink wine? No. Is it wrong to eat meat? No. Was it wrong for him to walk by the temple? No. But was it wrong for him to worship idols? Yes. Is it wrong to be immoral? Yes. Is it wrong and sinful to be intoxicated? Yes. And the, the, the temptation that led to those sins for that Christian Corinthian believer was down the path of Christian liberties. And so, so the question is not, can I do this? Really, the question is, is this best for my spiritual health? Is this best for my spiritual life? And so last week, we observed the first step that leads to spiritual failure is that it starts with the deception of self-confidence. Look at verse 12, just to review this. Verse 12, therefore, let anyone, so this is talking to every one of us in this room, anyone who thinks he stands. So this starts in your mind. It's a deception that you can spiritually stand on your own. 
You might think, well, I have, a, I have a spiritual heritage or look at these past victories where I've overcome my sin. You might depend upon those things and think, well, I won't fall. Look what's in my life. But that's a lie from Satan and it will lead to your eventual fall. Because what we see in verses one through four is that Israel were some of the most blessed people on the planet. I mean, they experienced in verse one, two, three, and four, miracle after miracle after miracle. And God miraculously saved them by parting the Red Sea. God miraculously led them with a pillar of cloud. God miraculously every day provided food and water for them. And and we realize that one who was doing that, who was with them, was Christ, the second person of the triune God. And so if any group were rich in God's blessings, it was Israel. But look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them... God was not pleased. And again, think about that statistic. Two million people coming out of Egypt. Most of them, God was not pleased with them, even though they were God's people. And then look at the last part. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. The word overthrown is a word that speaks of scattering on the ground. Think of an army that conquers a city and they destroy everything in their path and everything you could say are are scattered on the ground as they make their way through that city and destroy. Or think of a hurricane like the hurricane we saw on TV about a week and a half ago, Hurricane Ian, as it came through Florida and over islands, it scattered buildings and cars everywhere. It was complete devastation. That's the picture here. They sinned against God, and the consequence to their sin is that they were scattered in the wilderness. It's the idea that they sinned against God, and so what did God say to those who are 20 years of age and older, that you are not going to go into the promised land like I promised you would because you sinned against God, and you will die in the wilderness. So over the next 40 years, they were nomads and tents walking around, camping around the wilderness And literally, their bodies were scattered across the wilderness as they went from place to place. And every week, they're having funerals and burying bodies in the ground. And why did that all happen? It's because of their sin. You see, God is good. God is gracious. God is benevolent. Think of all that God gave to them, they had life, they had provision, they got to see the miracles of God. I mean, we talk about those today, and we're like, wow, God is very good, isn't he? He's very good to us. I mean, think about this world God's given to us. Think about the life that you have. I mean, if you're here and you're breathing, that's because of God's goodness. If you have health, it's because of God's goodness. Like, God is so good to us. I mean, most of us in this room look like you've had a meal sometime this past week. Like we live in a free country, probably one of the freest countries that have ever existed in this world. We live in one of the richest societies that have ever existed in the world. I mean, think about how good God is. God is very good to us, but God is also just. God is also righteous. And so when you reject him, when you disobey him, when you defy him, he guarantees there will be consequences for your sin. It's the law of nature. 
It's the law made by God. You reap what you sow. You get what you grow. The way of the sinner is hard. Proverbs 5, 22. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man. He is caught in the cords of his own sin. Proverbs 26, 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. He who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. I mean, this is over and over and over in the scriptures. God designed this world so that there's a consequence for our foolishness, for our sin, for our rejection of him. The Bible says the worst consequence is what? It's actually what happens after we die. The Bible says the wages, the payment for our sin is death. And that's not just speaking about physical death. It's talking about this spiritual death where we're separated from God forever. That's how God designed the world. And that's why the verse goes on to say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. But what? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, God needs to give you a gift. He wants to give you a gift to save you. And that's what we all need. The wages of our sin what we owe, what we deserve is death. What God offers is life. So, so how do you go as Israel from experiencing miracle upon miracle upon miracle, but displease God so much that your life, your nation really, the majority of you end your lives in divine condemnation? Well, that's the tension really of this passage. So in verses 1 through 5, we see it starts with the deception of self-confidence. And then look at verse 6. It spirals with the desires of your flesh. And when I say spirals, I'm thinking about like a plane that's flying, and the engine stalls, and it begins to take a dive, and it begins to turn and twist down. And, and you think at any moment, you can just pull it up, but it spins faster and faster, and you are in a nosedive, and you and on a tailspin, and you can't pull it back up and ends in the shocking devastation of the end of that, that flight. So it, that's what we're talking about. It spirals. It, it starts small. It, it grows. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us. So this is talking about the Old Testament, the, the Israel, that we might not desire evil as they did. So here we find the source of Israel's problem and really the source of our problem. And it's right there in verse six, that we might not desire. It's found in our sinful desires. If you have a new King James, it translates it with the word lust, that we should not lust after evil things. The NASB translates it as crave. The NIV renders it as setting our hearts on. So this, this verse teaches that we have inner sinful desires. We have lustful cravings. We are tempted to set our heart upon that which is outside of God's will. Actually, the Greek word is a compound word that is upon and passion, upon passion. It speaks of one setting his passions upon something. It's the idea that you want what you want no matter what God says or what God wants. It's a, cra a craving to obey your will instead of the will of God. It's a desire to love yourself rather than loving God. If you want to write down 
definition, sinful desires, this word desire is this, it's setting yourself up as God. It's really setting yourself up as God to do what you want, when you want, how you want, no matter what God wants. Let me say that one more, a couple more times. Sinful desires is setting yourself up as God to do what you want, when you want, how you want, no matter what God wants. And you see what at the center of this, it's your wanter, it's what you want. And it's in opposition to what God wants. How do we know what God wants? It's found in his word. And that's really the battle in this life. It's the battle between our wills, what we want, following our desires, and submitting ourselves instead to God's will, to his desires, to the control of his Holy Spirit over our lives. It's interesting. What's interesting about this desire is that you choose to set your heart upon that which is evil. But, but notice verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it actually also describes temptation as holding on to you. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. You could say it like this, has lay hold on you, has caught you. I love reading biographies and especially of gospel workers in exotic places. One biography that I read this past summer, again, was called God's Smuggler. And it tells the story of how, one of the stories in here tells the story of how the locals captured wild monkeys in Indonesia. It was really interesting because what they do is they set out the bait, they set out the delicious, you know, whatever it is they want that monkey to get. And the monkey goes and he grabs that bait and then the trap snaps and the trap grabs onto him. But what's remarkable about it is the monkey doesn't let go. In other words, he has that bait. He's grabbing on that bait, but the trap is grabbing onto him. And in the end of the day, they catch that monkey because he won't let go of that bait. Who has hold of who? Does the monkey have hold of the bait or does the trap have hold of the monkey? And that's actually what you see here with sin. See, we think, well, we can hold on to our desires and I can let it go whenever I want to let it go. But actually, that's not true. That's the deception of sinful desires. You think you have control. You're holding on to your sinful desires. You can let go at any time, right? But the reality is it's got a death grip on you. James 1.14 says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then when desire has conceived, when you give in to that desire, when you allow that desire to rule your heart, it gives birth to sin. And that sin grows and it grows and becomes a wild animal, really. And it brings forth the end what? It brings forth death. Right there, friends, that is the pattern of sin. That is the destruction of sin. And with all sinful desire, it's self-ruling as God in my heart. It's, it's wanting what I want, when I want it, how I want it, no matter what God wants. And what are those Sinful desires come from. What does our society say? Oh, it's, it's from your mama. It's how you were raised. No, it's probably because you're part of an oppressed people group. Oh, well, what does the Bible say? Well, Jesus tells us in Mark 7, 
It comes from our heart. Why do we have more murder in America than we normally did? Why is the crime rate going up? Why do more people steal? Well, our society has all these answers. My daughter, uh, one of my daughters goes to Moore Park, and she was taking a class, and uh, it was interesting. She watched some things in this class that she was required to watch, and they have their answers, their reasons why all this is happening. You can probably guess some of their reasons. And it was interesting Look, listen to that and thinking, you know, everyone wants to know why. Why is this going up? And they say, well, it's this and this and this. And God actually says, I told you long ago why it all happens. Jesus said in Mark 7, 21, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. And just in case you didn't get it, all of these evil things come from within. Jesus said in another place, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. In other words, those angry words that you spoke to that person this past week, it's not because that person frustrated you and you couldn't help it. It's not because your sibling's annoying. It's because you have a sinful inner desire to do what you want, when you want, how you want, no matter what God wants. Really, in the end of the day, it's because you want to be the God of your life. Remove God from the throne, put myself in the throne, and do what I want. And that's what he's talking about right here. A murderer kills, why? Because he wants to do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, no matter what God wants. A deceitful person lies, why? Because he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, no matter what God wants. The point is, it's ruling as God in your heart. This past week, I went camping with my son, and that was a lot of fun. We were on the Channel Islands. And if you don't know where that's at, it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, in the ocean. And it was a lot of fun. I got a lot of stories, but I'm not going to tell them here. But one of the things that happened, it's not really related to our camping trip, but there was another family that was near us. They had three teenagers, and they were having a lot of fun that week. And they were, you had to pack out. It's a half-mile walk um, to the dock to get in the boat to get out of there. So you have to take everything you have, you know. And so uh, the dad with his teenagers were walking along, packing their stuff out. And, you know, he had as sometimes happens, most of the stuff on him, like he's carrying the backpack and this, and he's pulling the thing, and his teenagers, you know, are carrying like one little, you know, duffel bag or something. And um, he drops something, you know, you're going along, you're trying to pick things up, and he drops something else, and, you know, you can see that's kind of frustrating. And he's, he's like, oh, and, he's, and then he starts yelling, you know, so we're in the campground, and my son and I are there making a little supper, you know, and he's, he starts being all mad, oh, you know, what? you guys aren't helping me. And so then everyone starts blaming, well, this person, and, you know, you've, You've probably never experienced that in your family, have you, okay? And, um, you know, and so, you know, you're kind of like, oh, we're just fixing our food, you know, as everyone's kind of looking at the corner of the ride to see what happens. And, you know, here you have this happy family, you know, doing their little thing to now it's, there's a lot of strife and they're kind of ending their trip on a sour note. You know how that is? You're kind of like, oh, that's, that's kind of sad. I turned to my son and I said to him, that's us when we allow sinful desires to control us. Right? It's not those people are terrible people. It's like when we allow our sinful desires to rule our hearts, it destroys our fun. <laughs> it ruins our relationships. And most importantly, it separates us from God. So we have to 
submit our hearts to the Holy Spirit and to his word. But our hearts want to be ruled by our own desires, don't they? So Paul used Israel as as an illustration here of this pattern of of self-confidence and the power of sinful desire and then the shocking devastation of following that desire. Verses 7 through 11, we see here four examples of those steps that lead to spiritual failure. And I don't know if you noticed this when we read it, but it's like he keeps repeating himself over and over and over. You see the desire of their flesh, their sinful desire. You see the destruction. In fact, just look at that with me. Look at verse number seven. He says, verse number seven, you see the desire, do not be idolaters. So that's the sinful desire they had. Look at verse number eight. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. And then notice he keeps going back to to then the consequence for their sin, 23 thousand fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test. So that's their sinful desire, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. In verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Do you see how this keeps going over and over and over? He's trying to get a point across. Remember, he said, I don't want you to be unaware. In other words, it's like, guys, don't you realize that from Genesis to Jesus, to now the time of the apostles, the scripture is very clear that the way of the sinner is difficult, that the way of, the, of sinful man ends in his own destruction. So the first example he gives is that of the sinful desire of idolatry. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play Paul is quoting there Exodus 32. In fact, would you do this? Would you go back to Exodus 32 with me? And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through the entire story, but I'll point out a couple of verses, then I'll try to retell the story for us to understand Paul's point here. Exodus 32 took place after Yahweh God saved Israel from the Egyptian army via many miracles. We've talked about some of those this morning. And then they came to this mountain. God led them to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And fire came down from heaven. And there was a great cloud over the mountain. And God spoke to him. And that place, Israel vowed together, we will follow the Lord. All that he says, we will do. And they made a covenant relationship with God. And then Moses went back up to the mountain to receive the final laws of the covenant, and that's where Exodus 32 is. And so I want you to picture this. You've experienced all this. You're just a regular Israelite. You're in your tent there, and Moses is up there, and what are you talking about in your tent? I mean, maybe, hey, just a couple months ago, you think about those plagues. Wasn't that incredible how God rescued us from slavery? (laughs) Remember, we were making bricks, and Wow. And, and hey, look at these rocks. Kids, look at the rocks we picked up and we walked through the dry sea, you know, the, the Red Sea and the waters parted. And we were like, oh, let's get a rock to remember this. I mean, I would do that, wouldn't you? I mean, well, most of our kids would do that, okay? Or, or wasn't that amazing to hear God's voice? Have you ever heard God's voice from the mountain, from that fire? I mean, the thunder, I mean, it was kind of scary. I mean, so this is the context of what we're talking about here. And, and then it's like, why is Moses not back yet? 
fact, look at verse 1 of chapter 32, Exodus 32. Notice the steps that led down to spiritual failure. And I really think some of it started with this kind of apathy, spiritual apathy. And then verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And what you see here is they're going, where is Moses? He should be back by now. This is taking a little longer than we thought, and they're growing impatient. And then it's like, I wonder, I wonder if maybe something happened to him. Maybe he died up there. Maybe Moses isn't coming back. Well, who's going to lead us? How do we know what we're supposed to do? Who's going to take care of us? So what you see here is Israel is going from impatience to doubt to fear You see them descending through these sinful desires. And and some of these things are not bad things. Like we want security, right? We we want protection. We want peace. Those aren't bad things to want. But instead of going to God for those things and saying, God, you're the one in control and we trust your plan and your timing, they said, we need to figure this out. And what do our desires want? Well, we want something to bring control to this. And so what do they do in verse number two? Up, Aaron, make us God's. Who shall go before us? Yeah, that's what God, Yahweh God did, but we want something else. What do you do when life is out of control? What do you do when you're afraid? When, when life's not working how you expect, what, what, what do we do? We go to something that can bring control, right? Something that can calm the nerves, something that maybe can... can can kind of bring everything together for us so we feel at peace and we have security. You know, we might go to a, a substance or we might go to an activity or we might go to, to a device or entertainment or something that can, we, it can bring those, those things under control in our life or at least get our minds off of that which is out of control. And what do we, what do we go to? And what are those things? Those are idols. Right? I mean, for them, it was a golden calf. The other nations, that they, that's what they went to, and they wanted security, or they wanted rain, or whatever. They wanted to have a child. Go to that calf, and, or go to that idol, and pray to it. And for us, what do we go to? What are our idols? So Israel, they went to Aaron, and they wanted peace and security. And instead of turning to God, they turned to their own sinful desires And they wanted to get what they wanted, when they wanted it, how they wanted, no matter what God wanted. And notice in verse 6, so they rose up early. This is a quote that Paul quoted. This is where Paul quoted from in 1 Corinthians 10. They rose up early the next day. They offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings to this golden calf. And the people sat down to eat. They ate the meat of the sacrifice and drink and rose up to play. That last part is speaking of sexual immorality. So they were impatient. Maybe God's plan isn't working out. Maybe, maybe Moses isn't going to be our leader. What happened? And maybe he's dead. Maybe we need something else. Moses comes down the mountain and he sees, I mean, just imagine Thousands and thousands of people, and they're drunk and committing open immorality. Those were God's people, and that's what he finds. How did they get there? How did God respond to all this? Look at verse 35. God sent a plague to the people, 
In other words, God brought judgment to them. Then he died. And it was just little by little, right? It was just, where, where's Moses? Hey, guys, let's talk about this. It was one step that led to another step, and it was just the descent of my own sinful desires. I don't think this is what I want. I think I want Moses down here. I don't think that's what I want. I think I want... They followed the path of sinful desires. They allowed their own sinful desires to rule their heart. And they were shocked with divine consequence. Go to Numbers chapter 25. The second example Paul uses is in Numbers 25. And I'm just going to read the, the verse in 1 Corinthians to you as you turn to Numbers 25. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. And that 23,000 helps us know that this is the story from Numbers 25. And so Paul used this to warn the church not to indulge in sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is fulfilling your sexual desires outside of the marriage covenant. God wants you to fulfill those within the marriage covenant. That's God's gift to us. But we often want to do that. We want to experience those and fulfill those sexual desires outside of the marriage covenant. We want to do what we want, when we want, how we want, no matter what God wants. So this passage warns us against that. Numbers 25 is at the end of 40 years of wilderness wandering. New generation and think of all the things that they experienced, God's provision. They saw their parents be punished. They saw all that. Now they're about to enter into the promised land. They can see Jericho. It's like, here it is. We're ready to go. God's going to give us what he promises. The king of Moab, though, he wanted to destroy Israel. And so his plan was he's going to hire or bribe the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. And so he tries to do that. But guess what? You can't curse God's people. Because greater is he who is in us, greater is God than Satan in the world, right? And so he can't do it. He can't curse God's people. And so Balaam says, well, I, actually, I know how you can have God's people be cursed. You might not be able to curse them yourself, but they can curse themselves. You can entice them to sin. And if they sin against God, there will be a consequence. That's Satan's scheme. You know, you know God, God has given Satan the ability to work in this world, but he has limitations. He can't possess a Christian. Like we're in October, so there's a lot of this talk, right? Satan cannot possess. His demons cannot possess Christians. He cannot have the souls of Christians. We are Christ's. He can't have us. We are promised that we will be with him in eternity. So he's not going to be able to take us to hell. So how can he destroy us? Well, he can entice us to sin. How does he, how would he destroy this church? If Satan wants to destroy this church, what's he going to do? He's going to come after our sinful desires. If he wants to destroy your family and you, what's he going to do? He's coming after your sinful desires because he knows when you sin, there's a consequence. Look at verse 1. That's what he does to Israel and the king of Moab does to Israel. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
These invited the people to sacrifice. How do they do this? They invited them to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate down, bowed down to their gods, and often in pagan worship, you have the eating and drinking and immorality. All those are mixed together. And so the evil plan of Moab was to seduce the men of Israel to be immoral with the women of Moab, so God would curse them. And so it was like, hey, come, come fellowship with us. Come worship with us. We want to be your friends. And then it seduced them to immorality. And look at verse 9. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague, so God judged them with a plague, were 24,000. Now, you might notice there's a difference between 1 Corinthians 10, 23,000, and 24,000 here. And what's the difference? Well, it's 1,000. And in 1 Corinthians 10, it says 23,000 died in a day. And here, it just says 24,000 died. So we can deduce from that that probably there was another 1,000 that died the day after this judgment. But the point is, the end of following their sinful desires was pain. Go to Numbers chapter 21. This is the next example, Numbers 21. This comes from 1 Corinthians, or this is the example Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10.9. This was the sinful desire to test God. And I'll shorten these next two examples so that we can get through this because we're almost at the end here. Numbers 21, verse 9. I'm sorry, Numbers 21 is about 1 Corinthians 10.9. And 1 Corinthians 10.9 says this. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Numbers 21 records the victory that God gave Israel after some of the Israelites were kidnapped by King Arad. Then God directed them in verse number four, look at verse four of Numbers 21, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the sea to go around the land of Edom. So we're just talking about like they're taking a journey here and the people became impatient on the way. So, so again, notice this downward spiral. They, they became impatient. It's like, why are we going this way? You know, it's kind of like the whole thing when you're driving. It's like, are we there yet? You know, when someone in the driver's seat or the passenger seat says, are you going the right way? You know, and God's the one directing them, and they're going, well, why are we going this way? And so they spoke against God, verse number five, and the people spoke against God and said to Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless bread. Literally, God was giving them food and water miraculously. He actually saved them from slavery, and they were discontent. And so verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people, so many people died in Israel. Would you go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? The last example in 1 Corinthians 10 is that of the people complaining. It's in verse number 10. There's, there's actually not one verse that talks about this in Exodus and Numbers. It's actually throughout the book of Exodus and Numbers. I mean, they're constantly murmuring and complaining. And notice 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. I mean, over and over and over, they're griping and complaining. We don't do that, do we? Oh, we often complain, don't we? We 
come home and complain about our coworkers. Children complain about the house rules. We gripe about politics. And, and we think of, you know, complaining. We're like, immorality and idolatry, really bad, you know. Complaining, eh, what's the big deal? Well, God thinks it's a big deal. What's so evil about complaining? Well, it's wanting what I want, when I want it, how I want it, no matter what God wants. God is the one who has given us what we have. God wants us to be thankful. He wants us to trust him. That's what his want is for us. He wants that want to be our want. And when we complain, it's like saying, God, you're not good. And if I were God, I would run things a lot different. This is what I want. So you notice all four of these examples, they have the same pattern. It, it's, it's, you, it's starting with the deception of self-confidence, and then you're spiraling with the desires of your wants. And he could go on and on, right? He gives four examples. I mean, his point is this. It's like, you want me to give any more? Like, I'll give you another one, and another one, another one, another one. Like, let me make this super, ooper duper clear to you, church. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Like, you want to be clear about something? Let's be clear about this. This is how it works. In fact, verse, look at verse 11. He says, read your Old Testament. Verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example. Like, look at their example but they were written down for our instruction. So why do we have the Old Testament? Why is it good for you children in here and teenagers and all of us to go through the Old Testament? I mean, well, some of those laws are outdated. We're not to follow those things. Why should we? Because the pattern of descent down to spiritual failure has not changed. It has not changed. And it's written for our instruction, verse 11, whom the end of the ages has come. We're at the end, folks. Christ is coming back soon. It's the end, right? Look around. And I'm not talking about politics and things like that. I'm talking about the soon coming of Jesus Christ. And so what is the lesson here for, for us? Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, here's the question I have for you. Have you been thoroughly convinced that you have sinful desires that displease God? I mean, are you convinced that you have a wanter that's broken? Have you been sufficiently persuaded that the end of fulfilling your sinful desires is painful and spiritually devastating? I mean, that's what the Holy Spirit wants you to be convinced of. Wants you to be convinced that the choices that you're making every day, they have consequence for this earth and for eternity. So what's the, what's the conclusion for us here? It's not to look to yourself, to try harder this week, but it's to look to God who is faithful. In fact, look at that in verse number 13. We're going to look at this verse next week. We're going to pick this book, or this, sorry, this verse apart next week. Really enjoy the hope that's found here. This isn't just a warning passage. Verse 13 is a hope passage no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Other people are going through some of the same things that you're wrestling with, but God is faithful. There's the hope right there. God provides a way of escape. 
God is the God who saves. God is the one who rescues. God is the one who transforms. And friend, if you are in here and you are without Jesus Christ, I can guarantee you your heart is weighed down by the guilt of your sin. That you might have tried to change, but ultimately you know you can't. Oh, you might switch from one activity to another, but in the end, your sinful desires are destroying you, aren't they? They're hurting your marriage, maybe your job, definitely your life, but worst of all, most importantly, they separate you from God. And when you die, the Bible promises that your sins will cause you to be separated from God for eternity. This is not my opinion. This is not me saying, hey, you know, I have some ideas for you, or here's what the Bible church movement, which whatever movement we're in, Lighthouse Bible Church, this is what we say. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you can't save yourself. You can't redeem yourself. Your wanter can't change by you wanting something else. Only God can change your wanter. Only God can transform your heart. Only God can bring you, can give you the peace and joy that he promises. The Bible teaches every person is born into this world and they're born with a, a wanter problem. That's that they want themselves to be on the throne. They want to live life their way apart from God. Paul said this was the description of the Philippian church or the Ephesian church, those who had been saved by Christ. He says, remember among whom we all once lived, everyone in this world once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. I mean, isn't that the description of this world? It's like, do what you want, when you want, how you want, no matter what God wants. That's what the world is gripped by. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In other words, all of us are born into this world as rebels against God. We all have our wonder broken. We all have a wonder that wants what we want and not what God wants. Friend, here we see in this passage that God wants you to wants to make it clear that we are. We all have a problem that we can't fix in a, of ourselves. And our problem is that we've rejected him. We've replaced ourselves. Or we've replaced God with ourselves. We've broken his laws. We've spurned his goodness. And we deserve wrath. He says we're children of wrath. What does that mean? People who sin against God are children of wrath. Wrath means God's judgment. And here he's talking about every person deserves the eternal wrath of God for their sin. But here's the good news. But God. God is rich. And it's, it's not in houses and lands and gold streets, okay? God's rich in mercy. In other words, he's good. He showed you his goodness. You spurned his goodness. You defied his laws. You've lived your life your own way. But God is also merciful. He wants to rescue, who wants to save God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God loves us and he wants us to turn to him when we were dead in our trespasses. We didn't care about him. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So if you're in here without Christ, he's rich in mercy and he loves you and he wants to save you. 
And how does he do that? He does that through Christ. You see, the reason Jesus came to this world was to live the life you could never live. He lived a life of absolute perfection, of righteousness. When he died on that cross, he was punished in our place. He atoned for our sins. He finished the payment for that, our sins on the cross. He took hell upon himself. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he had victory over sin and over death. And now he's in heaven and he offers you a gift and it's the gift of forgiveness. It's the gift of having your soul transformed by the power of Christ. And it's by his grace. He says, for by grace, you have been saved. God rescues souls. God changes your wonder. God transforms life by grace. That's his work in your life through Christ, he saves us by faith. It's, it's simply saying, God, I confess I'm a sinner and I trust in Jesus Christ. It's not of your own doing. Like your religion can't save you. Trying harder can't save you. Saying, I'm gonna try to be a better person or I'm gonna go through this therapy or whatever. It won't save your soul. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift from God. A gift is something you can't earn. You can't work for. It's something that someone must give you. God must give you. It's not the result of works so that you may boast. It's completely his work. It's God giving you the work of Christ and transforming your life. And friends, that's the only way to have the wanter change. That's the only way for us to be saved by turning to Christ in faith. I can remember as a teenager struggling with my sin and I grew up in a very religious home and I would sit in church every Sunday and I thought if I could just try to do this religious thing more or do this better, or, there were these prayers. We had these cards in the lobby that you could, it was like, a, it was a tract of the gospel and then had these prayers and I'd just flip it over to the prayer and I thought if I just pray this with all my heart and, and I, if I have a really good prayer, maybe, maybe that will earn me favor with God. Maybe God will like me more. Maybe I can overcome some of these sins. And then I was in a setting like this and someone was speaking and I was sitting about this place over here and, and I was listening to this person and suddenly I was overwhelmed with my sin and what I realized is, Ben, you have a problem in your heart and you can't fix yourself. Religion can't fix you. You can't save yourself. And I remember gripping, grabbing onto my seat and almost like just leaping up and I just knew in my heart, Lord, I need Christ to save me. In fact, when they gave us an opportunity, I actually literally stood up and said, I need to be saved. And that might be someone, someone in here this morning. You might realize in your heart, you're like, I got a problem in my heart. What do you need? You need to be saved. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. It's the only solution to change your heart from wanting what you want, when you want it, how you want, to changing it to a heart that wants Christ, what he wants, when he wants it, how he wants us to live that out. And then look at verse 13, church, because this is for us. This is a promise for us that God is faithful. If you are in Christ, if you're a child of God, he's faithful. He's faithful to keep you until that last day. He, he's faithful to not bring up your sins against you. He's, you're secure in the Father's hands. If you confess your sin to him, the Bible says what? He is faithful and just 
to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do you deserve that? Do I deserve that? Absolutely not. But he's faithful. If we are faithless, what? He remains faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13, for he cannot deny himself. He's faithful to provide a way of escape. He's faithful to give you grace. He's faithful to enable you to obey. And so what's our responsibility? Christians, what is our responsibility? It's to go to him and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to rely upon myself. I'm not going to have self-confidence in myself. I'm not going to depend upon me. I'm not going to allow sinful desires to rule over my heart. I'm going, to, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to rule over my heart. I want the word of God to be what guides me in life. I want to walk in the Spirit. And so, Lord, I want to come to you in prayer and say, Lord, help me to walk in the Spirit. I want to get up each morning and I want to have a time where I'm submitting my heart to Christ and bowing before him and saying, I can't live this life on my own. I can't do this myself. I'm not better than those people. I need Jesus Christ. And I think it's also included in that is being wise as we exercise our Christian liberties. It's living, it's exercising our Christian liberties under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's saying, you know, there's some things that probably aren't best for me spiritually. Hey, that person can do it. God bless them. I hope it's something that's helpful for them. But for me, I don't think I can probably do this because it's not best for me spiritually. And I want to live my heart in complete submission to the Holy Spirit and not unto myself. And so, Lord, and so, friends, we need to be warned and be aware of the steps that lead to spiritual failure and stay in the midst of God's will, depending upon his grace. Would you bow with me in prayer? As we pray, I invite everyone in this room to go to the Lord in prayer. Christian, this is our time for us to remind ourselves of the word of God and the warnings of his word and to not rely upon ourselves, but rely upon him in prayer and say, Lord, help me to see when I'm deceived. Open my eyes. Help me to be wise in how I exercise my Christian liberties. Help me to depend upon you. Maybe you're in here without Jesus Christ. And friend, God's call to you is to come to him. He promises all who come to him, he will not cast out. So friend, would you come to Jesus Christ today? All you have to do is call upon him. Let's pray.